Thank you. And if you're with us for the first time here today, just want to uh, just kind of bring you up to speed. We are studying through the Gospel of John, and uh, we have been doing that for quite a number of weeks right now. We are finding ourselves in chapter 2, and I want to welcome you to be here and just encourage you to, um, to follow along and take notes and just uh, see what God would have for you this morning. Well, through my years in ministry, um, I have met plenty of people who have, for whatever different reason, reduced their understanding of God and the Bible to the following kind of statements. And um, I say this because it is really a reduction of the truth. Um, They would say that the Old Testament is just really all about wrath, grace, and holiness, and that's not what I wanted to say at all. Um, it's, it's, let's start again here. The, the God of the Old Testament is a bloody God, a God of wrath. Have you heard that before? And the New Testament is a loving God, a God of grace. Okay, but that really is just taking some elements of the Old Testament and New Testament and really um, reducing it to some kind of a a basic theme, which isn't accurate. Um, It really is a reduction, for there is plenty of love and grace in the Old Testament. I hope you note that when you read it. In fact, there's plenty of blood and wrath in the New Testament. In particular, in the Gospels, you will find that related. You'll find that also related in a book called the Book of Revelation, which is pretty wrathful last time I read it. Okay, um, so it, it's the, the, the problem here is sometimes people get to the place where they come with ideas about the Bible and conclusions about God, and there's a sense in which if you say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, there's almost a sense in which we don't have to pay too much attention to the Old Testament, because now, with the New Testament, we have this God of love and grace, And so the emphasis now is just on this God of love and grace. And friends, that is a distortion. And that's why I have a couple of these things up here. In the Old Testament, we do see wrath. We do see grace. We also see holiness. In the New Testament, we see grace. We see holiness. And we see wrath. Um, So the reality is that we don't have one without the other. Jesus went to a cross as an act of love, but he also died a bloody death and bore the wrath of God. See, they all work together. God's holiness, his love, his suffering, his death, his grace, his resurrection, his joy is all intertwined at Calvary. So we must be very, very careful to create or not to create in our minds a God that is distorted and is not really a true reflection of his word. And sad to say, I think that much of Christianity, in particular American Christianity, does have a a leaning toward a distortion here, viewing God as the God of wrath as kind of the one you need to kind of push aside and just focus on the God of love. Now, as we come to John chapter 2, John continues to give evidence that will lead to belief, that will lead to abundant life. And that's a reflection of John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which is really the the theme verse of the Gospel of John. But here he gives 
back-to-back examples, back-to-back accounts of the ministry of Jesus that give us a balanced view of who Jesus is. Last week, we looked at Jesus who went to a wedding, and we saw him there be presented by his mother with a need that really would, uh, would help satisfy the shame of a family. And so, out of his graciousness, he turns water into wine, and he, he supplies and provides all the necessary wine in abundance for this family, so much so that the, the master who was running this whole wedding tasted this, this wine and said, you've saved the best till last. And here is Jesus who's giving um, this, this tender, this loving, this gracious response uh, to this particular need. Now, in our present passage, we're going to find that Jesus is strong. He's vigorous and manly, acting in holy anger against sin. And so both of these pictures are pictures that are important for us. So there needs to be a balanced view of who Jesus is. He is acting in this passage as the divine Messiah of holy zeal, unafraid to exercise his rights as Lord and as God. He is both Savior and he is Lord. He is our tender, embracing lamb, and he is also our zealous and vigorous lion. This beautiful picture of Jesus as the lamb, this beautiful picture of Jesus also as the lion. Now, sadly, much of the church is comfortable with Jesus as the lamb, but they're not comfortable with Jesus as the lion. Just think about the pictures of Jesus often found in Sunday school. You guys probably sat in Sunday school. I'm sure many of you did. Most of the pictures of Jesus in Sunday school is Jesus with this broad smile and his welcoming arms and hands and little children just bouncing up to him and people coming and just ready to hear all the wisdom that he has to say. And we have this picture of Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, presented oftentimes in the context of Sunday school classes. And friends, please hear me. I'm not mocking that at all. That is a glorious picture of how beautiful Jesus is, of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, of his meekness, of his tenderness. And we want to embrace that. We want to love that. We want to shout that. But that's not the whole picture. It does remind us of another picture, Matthew 11, Verses 28 and 29. Turn there, if you would, please. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. In that passage, this is what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But when the picture is left there, you you are left scratching your head a little bit, wondering whether or not Jesus is one of those guys that you would pick to play on your ball team. You wonder if he has any tenacity. You wonder if he has any masculine grit, whether he has any zeal or any, any drive, or if there's any oomph in his character, or is he just always smiling, welcoming, gentle, meek, loving person. Remember, meekness is strength under control. 
When we say that Jesus is meek, that doesn't mean that he's a wimp. That means that he has every resource within him to respond to what is before him, but he graciously withholds that for the good of those who are there. But when Jesus is responding in holy zeal, I'm calling it this, it is strength exercised under control. We find in this passage Jesus driving out animals, money changers, out of the temple. The the disciples describe it as zeal. And there was nothing about Jesus that was out of control at all. He was fully in control. He was angry at what he saw. But he certainly was not in the kind of rage that we would think, man, this person's really out of control. No, he knew what he was doing. It was deliberate. It was purposeful. It was zealous on his part. So both his meekness and his holy zeal are a picture of the real Christ, full of passion, love, and mercy, and holiness for the glory of his Father. So today as we encounter Jesus, we find him journeying toward Jerusalem with many other Jews making the pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. Let's look at verse 13 now of our text. Verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. In other words, it was just around the corner. It was, it was just about there, okay? And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, understanding that Jesus grew up in that culture, this was a normal practice for him. As a young boy, we find him heading to Jerusalem with his family. You remember that story? And when he's about 12 years old, he is there with his family going along. This was a normal practice. It was a typical pilgrimage for for the Jews to head toward Jerusalem for Passover. So the place, of course, was going to be packed. But there was a joyous celebration going on. It was kind of like people going out on Black Friday, right? Everyone happy and joyful with their mace and their gun, right? Just (laughs) ready to go shopping. No, well, these people are going to Jerusalem because out of their obligation and their joy and their love for their God, Most of them, many of them are going to offer sacrifices to worship their God. And I'm sure he was encouraged by the families that were pilgrimaging together, the people that were working their way to Jerusalem together. Why? So that they could go and they could worship their God. Now, I realize as we look at Judaism during that time, there's a lot of stuff there that is ugly, that is distorted. But there is still the essence of people who had a heart and a love for the God of Israel. You with me there? And so as he is encouraged, as he is going, (laughs) he finally ends up at the court of the Gentiles in the temple. And friends, from this passage, there are three lessons from the temple that I think God wants to teach us. The first one I'm calling the zeal of Jesus in the temple. The zeal of Jesus in the temple. Now, in the temple, it says in verse 14, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, this all started innocently, a little history lesson here. It all started innocently because these merchants were providing a need. Imagine if you lived 
miles out of Jerusalem. You were coming to Jerusalem, and your purpose was to ultimately go to the temple and to offer sacrifice. And your sacrifice, of course, was based on the size of your family. So that determined whether or not you, know, you brought a sheep, whether you brought an oxen or whatever it was. And though if you were really poor, you took a dove, right? I mean, you just, it was based on your circumstances. But, so here you are, and you're, you're going up to Jerusalem. You, you got your animals well, if you have to spend the night somewhere, it's a little bit more difficult to spend the night if you've got animals with you, right? And then you finally get to Jerusalem after you've you know, pulled this animal. It probably slowed you down somewhat. You get there, and the priest looks down on it and says, you cannot offer that animal for a sacrifice. Why? It's unclean. It's not ceremonially, ceremonially there you go, got it out, um, clean. And the difference here is this, that, that priests would go to school and learn the particular way that they had to look at these animals to determine whether that animal was ready for sacrifice or not, or could be used as a ceremonial sacrifice. So your opinion on it really didn't matter. They had the last word. So here's what happened instead. These merchants provided for a need. And the need was... Just, just come to Jerusalem. Then here in Jerusalem, you can buy an animal that has already been looked at, has already been uh, demonstrated to be an animal that could be used in those sacrifices. You'd buy that animal. You go across the Kidron Valley, because where it was originally was across the way, and you take it into the temple. It was providing a need. It was a helpful thing. Just think about it. It was just a helpful thing. Don't think about this necessarily as just being a wicked, nasty thing at this point. It was meeting a need. It was providing for uh, the, the ceremony and the responsibility that they had before God. But what then happened was, because they first met across the Kidron Valley, um, as time went on, on, over time, the provision of this need and the multiple presence of various merchants and money changers they said, you know what, there's no room over there. Why don't we bring them over here into the court of the Gentiles? And so they brought all this into the court of the Gentiles primarily for the purpose of convenience. And so now, as Jesus enters this court of the Gentiles, here's what he finds. Oxen, sheep, birds chirping and lowing and bleeding, okay? And not only had this developed into some kind of a business market, so to speak, when a Jew came to the temple to offer sacrifice, there was something else he was required to do. It was called the temple tax. Now, again, understand that people were coming from different areas around Israel, or even might say Judah or Judea, and with them they came with different forms of currency. And in order to pay the temple tax, they actually had to exchange their money for the one currency that was accepted at the temple. You say, aha, see, they're just trying to rip everyone off. Well, I don't think initially that was the goal. I think initially they wanted to make sure that there was a standard currency so people could pay their tax and that the temple wasn't having to mess around with all this different kind of money, that there was a standard so everyone could be sure that what they brought and what they paid actually met the, the need for the temple tax. There is nothing in here that tells us that Jesus is saying anything against the kind of worship that was going on in the temple being wrong or the temple tax being wrong. 
Now, um, one of the things that we do have to recognize, though, is that um, this, this Tyrian coinage ended up being the means by which you had to now come and exchange your money. You had to exchange it into this particular form. There are two accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. There's an early account, which we find here, and there's another account later on, right before um, the, his, his Passion Week. And one of the differences is this. In the other passage, Jesus really emphasizes the corruption of the money changers and the merchants that are selling their wares in the temple. And he really goes for the jugular and he calls them a den of thieves or a den of robbers. And the point there is, is he's emphasizing the corruption now that has taken place within the temple. But that isn't the point of this particular account. There's nothing in our particular account where Jesus says, I have a problem with the corruption. What's going on here is that Jesus has a problem with this stuff even being present within the temple. It's the presence of all this activity that isn't necessarily bad. But the fact that it's brought into the temple is what Jesus has a problem with. Again, look at verse 15 and following. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There are plenty of other places that you can do your trading, that you can do your business, even as it relates to coming to the temple. You don't have to bring it in here. So clearly there's something going on in the temple that Jesus is not pleased about, so much so, he feels justified to drive it out boldly. What is consuming him? What is it that the disciples would attribute his activity as? And verse 17 tells us, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So as Jesus says, it has to do with the temple becoming a house of trade. Going to the temple was supposed to be a solemn occasion of pure worship. If you're going to the temple, what are you going for? To worship. You're going to pray. You're going to hear God's word read and God's word taught. You're going to confess your sins. You're, you're going to, um, to be humble before God and to learn from him. But your ability to have that kind of pure worship in the temple is undermined by all the bleeding of the sheep, the complaining of the oxen, the, the bartering and haggling of the pilgrims and the merchants, and the chirping birds. Imagine if we in this room had animals, birds, people changing money, haggling over that, and it wasn't like, oh, the service is going to start right now but someone's standing up to, to read the word of God, and they're sitting over the side, and they're praying, but all this noise is going on. Do you think that's helpful for worship? The answer is absolutely not. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. This stuff has been brought into the temple that was never supposed to be there in the first place, and so he's driving it out of the temple. Richard Phillips puts it well. He says, the one thing that would have been impossible 
at the temple was the one thing it was made for, the reverent worship of God. So it isn't so much that these things were all wrong in and of themselves. Ultimately, later, Jesus identifies the corruption, but people needed oxen, they needed the sheep, they needed the doves, they needed to have their money changed, there needed to be a place to do that, but it didn't need to be in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. His main point then was where this took place and the distraction that having it in the temple caused in hindering pure worship taking place. So the very presence of these things caused a huge distraction. So let's jettison the principle here out to the 21st century. Let's talk about us. Say, uh-oh, here it comes. I'm just waiting for it. And, and I, would just wanna, I just wanna ask this question and then I'll make a couple of cautionary words, okay? You have the question there in your handout. But ask, let's ask ourselves the question, if Jesus were to walk into the average church in America, in the Bay Area, or even into this church, are there things that we have brought in to our fellowship that he would want to drive out? Things that make the church a house of trade. Things that tarnish the purity of our worship. Now, here's the word of caution. This could be application that is like Pandora's box, spurting out all of our personal preferences in the guise of being biblical. So I want to just throw a caution up there to say, just whoa, Nelly, if you're just ready to pounce on something here and say, ah, see, I knew it. Mm, you know, can't have this in the church. Let's hold on a little bit here, okay? And let's try and flesh this out with a, a balance and an understanding of what Jesus is saying, okay? If Jesus came to visit your church, what would it be like? And uh, let's make sure we're putting this in the right context. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide it into three different areas. One has to do, first of all, with atmosphere. With atmosphere. I'm gonna, just going to go through and ask some questions here. I just want you to, to think through them. Are we coming to church or to a concert at some local tavern? Okay. Are we gathering for worship or trying to attract people with the latest technology? See, at that point in time, it should have had something really cool happen on the, on the overhead, right? I mean, it should, on the overhead, on the PowerPoint, right? Are we humbling ourselves and confessing our sin, or are we hyping ourselves emotionally, seeking some kind of an experience? Are we pursuing Christ-likeness or creating subtle legalistic checkboxes for acceptance? Now, that's not a, an exhaustive list, but it's, it's a list of four, at least four things and four areas where you say, well, some of those things do create atmosphere. I mean, is, is it just kind of like, hey, do you see our technology? Wow, we're really glorifying God. Well, I'm glad for the technology. It's a great tool, but it sure can be a distraction, right? Um, you know, Pastor Rod, you didn't put a new picture on that one slide, you know, and it's like you're looking at the wrong thing. PowerPoint and sound are all tools to help us in what we're doing, to help us to grow. So the atmosphere is something we need to consider. Secondly, philosophy, in the arena of philosophy. Listen again, are we establishing a holy congregation that is pursuing God, or are we seeking allegiance to a particular political party in the guise of Christianity? All right, you wore metal toe caps today, didn't you? Maybe so. Listen, Gateway Bible Church is, is not going to be 
aligned with any particular political party in this country. Number one, we can't legally. Number two, it's irresponsible to do that. Number three, it really doesn't matter from the perspective of eternity. You as individuals have to come up with your determination as to who you're going to vote for and why you're going to vote for that person. And we may be all different in how we come to those places. But my encouragement as pastor is take God's truth, apply it to whatever party or whatever candidates are there, and use it as a basis for the determination as to who would be best to accomplish the purposes of leading and guiding our country. And sometimes we as evangelical Christians have made foolish decisions because all we think about are Christian issues rather than the issue of someone that has the ability to actually manage. Okay? Soapbox, get off rod now. All right? Secondly here, are we embracing God's truth or are we seeking man's wisdom to improve on God's truth and create attendance, growth, and ministries? Much of the church growth strategy says God's gospel is great, but let's improve on it by, by just manipulating people to come and to worship and to be there. Are we seeking to grow people deep in God's truth, or are we looking to increase our budget with more attendance? I'm glad that some of you are visiting with us today, and quite honestly, um, I'm glad because you're here just because you're here. I don't want to look out there and not see people and just see dollar signs. You see what I'm saying? But I tell you what, there, there are some places that's what is thought of. Dollar signs, ooh, more people, more dollar signs, more budget. God will take care of us. Crying out loud, he's already taken care of us just in the few months that we've been together in incredible ways, has he not? And God brings people, and God brings people that he's going to work through, and he'll just accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And if times are difficult and tough, then times are difficult and tough, and we'll, we'll be okay. We've got to be careful that we don't get sucked into that trap and that philosophy. Are we embracing what God says about our problems, or are we looking for solutions that come from the human psychological and psychiatric movement? It's amazing to me how much psychology is talked about, not only in the church, but among God's people within the church. I mean, just a couple of anecdotes. Previous ministry in Michigan, I had a lady come in one time, really, really nice lady. She says, Pastor Rod, I suffer from adult ADHD. So I may not be able to pay attention the whole time, and I may fall asleep. I said, you know what? Um, thank you for telling me that. I want you to sit right here in the front, okay? And if I see that you're about to fall asleep, I'll make sure I come up and I nudge you a little bit to make sure you stay awake with me. In other words, it had become an excuse. It had become her little, her little thing to kind of throw out there if she just kind of, you know, went off on a tangent. It's like, no, 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 wait a second. You have a responsibility to sit and to listen to God's truth. And if you truly are struggling, I'll be there to help you. Okay? It's all right. Another situation, previous ministry, anytime I would speak on, or me or another pastor would speak on any subject that came and talked about the subject of anxiety, if it was just reading God's word and it said anxiety, this person would just kind of like, oh, I can't believe it, because you're daring to talk about something that is psychological. It's like, well, God speaks to it. Listen to what it says. And the problem is when we bring in the world's philosophy, oftentimes we jettison God's truth. 
and we embrace the world's philosophy and it replaces the instruction and the guidance of God's truth for the glory of God. And friends, that's what we're talking about here. If Jesus came to visit our church and we had brought in psychology, which by the way, through the, through the 80s and in particular early 90s, you had a lot of that going from the pulpits of, of churches around America. Thankfully, there is a wave going back to biblical expository preaching. The final area is behavior. Behavior. Are we serious about sin, confession, grace, and forgiveness? Or are we quick to minimize our lifestyles as rights from our view of Christian liberty? Have you ever heard Christian liberty thrown out there as an excuse or as God's reason why I can do what I want to do? Why I can walk in sin? Well, don't call it sin. It's Christian liberty. Okay. Are we seeking to do good to those who hurt or speak evil of us? Or are we opposed, sorry, or are we looking for ways to condemn those who don't know the Lord? Um, you've probably seen pictures of that one church that goes around with signs and placards telling people how much they love them, right? You know what I'm talking about? I'm being facetious here. It doesn't say I love you. It says God hates bags and things like that, okay? Condemning the world for their sin in that way does not equate sharing the gospel. <laughs> the sin that people struggle with is their sin of unbelief. And when we get caught up with particular sins, then we are going down a path where we want to condemn people for their behaviors rather than love them as people who are struggling with the sin of unbelief. If we had, if we had a, a couple that was a same-gender couple come and walk into this church today, what should we do? Preach to them about their same-gender beliefs or welcome them in, share the gospel, treat them with grace and love, trusting that God through that is going to accomplish his purposes to meet the need of their heart, which ultimately is, their, is not their sexual persuasion. <laughs> it's their lostness before God. Completely different attitude, completely different understanding of how we deal with behavior in the church. Are we aware of our need for God or are we looking to use God for our purposes? See, we can, you know, we can use God. We can say, well, this is God's will for my life. You've probably heard someone say that to you before. They're doing something really, really dumb and foolish and they're saying, but it's God's will. No, it's not. How dare you say it's not? I determined it was. Yeah, but it's not. Well, how dare you? It's not. Why? Because Scripture is very, very clear that what you're doing is sin. But we are so often afraid to even say that. Right? Now, the question that we've given here are many, but they're serious. They affect what we bring into our gatherings, into our home groups, it, they affect our, our music, our songs, our conversations, our prayers, our teaching, our preaching, our time and our efforts, our parenting, our marriages, even our donuts and coffee. These questions answered God's way affect what we do. And we must be thinking through on a personal level, what am I bringing into the house of God that will hinder pure worship? 
And then as a church, we have to ask ourselves a question, what are we bringing into our worship times that hinders pure worship? And listen, I know there's going to be some disagreement on that. We've got to be careful about things like the worship wars, right? Traditional music is more godly than contemporary music. Now, was that traditional music, when it was contemporary, less godly than the music that had no instruments before the You see what I'm saying? We're living in an era where we have to say, you know what? Whether it's more traditional or whether it's contemporary, our measuring stick needs to be a biblical understanding of God's principles applied appropriately to something that is old and to something that is new. Worship wars can destroy a church, can destroy the house of God. All right? Political affiliations can also cause havoc in the church. At a previous ministry, one Sunday I wasn't speaking, so I decided I was going to walk the parking lot. This is during the political campaigns. And I was amazed to see the variety of party affiliation and candidates displayed on people's bumpers. Green Party, Democratic Party, Republican Party, Libertarian Party. And they're all gathering together for one big party called the Sunday morning gathering. And the problem is that sometimes we think the church should only be one. And we be careful. Like I said earlier, be careful, be careful. And we've got to be careful that we say, you know what, this is God's house. Now, there may be some issues, there may be some initiatives that would be helpful in the establishing and the maintaining of our culture that as, as leaders we say, you know what, this is something we want to let our people be aware of and they can, they can kind of vote with their own conscience, with their own feet and want you to be aware of that. But we're not going to uh, affirm any particular political party. Um, Hollywood and pop culture. I just, I just bring this up just simply to say, you know, we can spend our time talking a lot about movies, about the music scene. Now, what would it be like if every time I preached, I used just multiple illustrations from the recent movies that took place in our culture? I would be relevant. It's woo with quotes, okay? I know the culture. I've seen the movies. I want to be careful here, but there, I've seen sermon series that are based on movies that have come out in the last couple of months because they want to be relevant. We're bringing in the nonsense of maybe something that is normal, that is fine, that you go and watch as a family, or you sit down in your living room and watch, but you're bringing it into the context of a time when our focus and our attention should be on God. But we enjoy talking about the fun stuff that relates to contemporary culture. Now, it's not wrong to bring up an illustration like, like that. It's just that just over and over and over again, is that the kind of conversation that we're going to have? If you want to know some good movies that I've seen, I'll tell you about them. But we've got to be careful that that's not, the, that's not the basis of our time together. Here, here's one that I think we do struggle with, and that would be sports teams. You know, I, I remember um, 
I remember when you know the the Tigers were playing the A's um, a few years back in the playoffs, and the Tigers swept the A's. You know, I like the Tigers. I mean, I'm not. I don't. You you will not see a big Tigers mural at my house. Okay, it's not that. But the, you know, just from Detroit, I've spent time there, and I like the Tigers. And it's not that I don't like the A's. I just like the Tigers. But I, people were just. <laughs> talking about, you know, tigers and A's because I was from Detroit and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it, and then you've got the A's and the Giants and all that conflict going on, and then you've got the Raiders and the Niners going on, right? Now, listen, sports is fun, right? It has its rightful place. But we've got to be careful that we're not lifting it up, and it is the basis of our time and our discussion and our illustrations or our or are, are just, you know, are fodder together. Alistair Begg was so helpful for me years ago. Um, he just taught, they had two services, and he told, he told a number of pastors, he says, listen, he says, you may not like this, and your people may not like what I do, but I don't go out before church and go hang around and hang out with the people that are coming to church on a Sunday morning. He says, I stay in my office, I'm reading my Bible, I'm going over my message, and when it's time for worship, after the singing starts, I will come and I'll stand right in the front of, of the church. And then when it's time for me to get up and to preach, I'll preach. He says, I don't want to be distracted by any discussion about football, of soccer, or anything like that. I have a job to do, and that is to feed God's people. I tell you, I respect that. And I tell you what, Alistair Begg loves soccer. But there's a right time and there's a right place for those things. You understand what I'm saying here? We've got to be careful. And it's, we're not going to have our ushers be sports police, Hollywood police, political police. There's not going to be that kind of thing going on here. I'm just telling you, we've got to be careful. These are things that can be distractions for us when we are gathered for what purpose? To worship God with purity. In other words, what is our persona? People come to Gateway, what do they expect? Healthy conversations centered around caring for one another and, you know, how you've been doing this week and how can I pray for you and how was Thanksgiving and how is your family and that thing you were telling us last week and just that kind of stuff is all part of body life and being a family together. And it doesn't mean you can't say, oh, hey, we went to an A's game or, you know, what about that? I mean, it's okay to do it, but if that is the emphasis, then we're... Um, really in trouble, I think. Now, what, what we do in our worship reveals much about what we believe or think about God. Richard Phillips, again, helps us. He says this, a church that worships through dry and joyless ritual shows that it believes in an absent God. A church that stirs up carnal enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertaining uh, believes in a weak God who needs our spiritual help. A church focused on money reveals a God who is unable to meet our needs. A church that exalts in its own celebrities shows its blindness to the glory of God. What God wants is humble people gathering, confessing their sin, Worshiping him, God in, in, in the best purity that they can bring for his glory. 
And we want to make sure we can do all we can to make sure that environment, that atmosphere, that philosophy, that kind of behavior is true within the church. Now, we spent a little more time on the first point purposely. And Jesus there in the temple had this holy tantrum. And um, it's no wonder that as we move along in this text that the Jews, likely the temple authorities, came and asked Jesus some questions. Now, if, if this had been something that was so offensive, the soldiers would have been sent to Jesus. But the temple authorities now come to Jesus, and this is what they say, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, first of all, the question asked by the Jews reveals, when I say Jews, remember, I'm thinking temple authorities here, probably a delegate from the Sanhedrin. This, this question asked by the Jews reveals that they did not necessarily deny the rightness of what Jesus had done in the temple. In other words, they may have said, you know, and thought to themselves, you know what? We're questioning that he did this, but not that it was wrong for him to do it because we recognize that it is hard to worship here in the temple because we brought all this stuff in. The question for them is this, what makes you think that you have the authority or the right to do what you did? And if you have the right and the authority to do that, show us a sign. And it's very possible if they were learned men, I'm sure that they were, that they were plagued by a a verse in the Old Testament, a prophetic verse found in Zechariah 14.21. Zechariah 14.21. See if you can dig that out there. I'll read it if you want to listen. It says this, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Hmm, on that day. One of the themes in Zechariah. On that day, the coming of the Messiah. He's coming, and when he comes, there's no longer going to be a traitor in the house of the Lord. Here comes this person making a whip. He's whipping all these animals out. He's telling those that have the birds to take them out. He's turning over the tables. What is, are you doing, and who gives you the authority to do that? So it makes sense that they would ask him, show us a sign. So I thought about this a little bit. He's talking here about destroying the temple. There's really three ways that you can destroy a temple. Now, you, you can think of a fourth one. Let me know. But uh, here are three ways that I thought of. First of all, conquest. The temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed a number of times because of conquest, right? Armies coming in, flattening it, destroying it. In fact, if you go visit in Israel, you will see different layers of the history of that land, basically even at the temple. You can go and just look up the wall, and if you have a good guide, they'll tell you that. But it's really a physical disruption. Then you have what we just read, and this, this, what Jesus was, was confronting, and that's compromise. It's the way you destroy the temple. It's spiritual destruction. You could not worship 
because of what has taken place in the temple. And if, if anything is now taking place and, and hindering worship, ultimately that's a sin. Ultimately that's a spiritual issue. That's why Jesus is doing what he's doing. It's taking away from worship. It's destroying worship. But the third way you can destroy the temple is by putting Jesus on the cross. We're told here that his body is the temple, right? So it's interesting, and I think it's purposeful, that Jesus is talking about himself as the temple, as the temple that would ultimately be destroyed when he has just spent time cleansing the temple. There's a problem in the temple, and guess what? This temple may be destroyed, and ultimately it would be in AD 70, right? But Jesus being the temple, the one that you're sending to a cross who's going to die, who's going to be buried, who's going to be guarded, who is going to raise on the third day, is a temple that will never again ever be destroyed. And their response was, it took us 46 years to build the temple, and you raise it up in three days? In other words, right? They just totally missed it, and of course they totally missed it, because it was hidden from them. But with, for us, this is a sign. This is Jesus teaching something about himself, a theological truth based on something that he has, he has already interacted with. Ultimately, a miracle of magnitude proportions would be his death, burial, and resurrection. And here we have a theological sign, Jesus identifying himself as this temple. Listen, every tabernacle and every temple built for the glory of God, as glorious as it was, was simply a preparation for the one true temple, and that is Jesus Christ. James Boyce says this. I think you have this in your handout, and it's up here also. The resurrection proved that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished what he claimed to have come to earth to accomplish. If it can be shown that Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead as the early Christians believed, and as the scriptures claim, then the Christian faith rests upon an impregnable foundation. Jesus did coming, saying, hey, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be you know, crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. He said that prior to the events, and that ultimately is what happened. So he's prophesying something that is going to take place. Now, what this means is that Jesus is ultimately the sole authority for how we should fashion and shape the church in their context, what should take place in the temple. No powerful or manipulating preacher can take his place. No pope, no archbishop, no imam, no guru, no ancient philosopher, no church board, no wealthy contributor, no celebrity, no person of influence. No mere man or mere woman has the authority to speak for God apart from his word. He has absolute authority. And that's what he's saying ultimately by application to us. And that's what he's saying to those Jewish leaders. I did this because I am Lord of the temple. I am the one who is the master of this temple. I have every right, but you have no idea. You don't comprehend it. Jesus is, oh sorry, this is, when we look at gateway, let's remember 
This is not Rod Phillips' church. This is not the gatekeeper's church. This is Jesus' church. We are to sit at his feet. We are to study his word. We are to follow his example. We are to worship him in obedience to his wishes. We must, we must, we must recognize that to be true. Or, or the dynamics of gateway change drastically. Now, there's two names I want to give you that I think are helpful here. I actually, are they in your handout? I can't remember if they're there or not. Simon Greenleaf, from many years ago, was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School, and he had three volumes called The Treaties of Law of Evidence, which is the foundation for um, legal practice in America today. So he's a very significant person, right? Basis for American legal practice. Um, he sought out to disprove the evidence of Scripture. And he went through all the evidence in the Gospels to see whether or not, and to prove that the resurrection and Jesus Christ was not God and all that kind of stuff. And he came away saying, the eyewitness accounts that are given in the Gospels, if they were given in the court of law, would have to be believed as true. Based on American legal standards. Now, friends, that's pretty significant. And as a result of that, God did a work in his heart. He ended up writing a second book, The Testimony of the Evangelist, The Four Gospels Examined by the Rules of Evidence, which remains unrefuted to this day. The other man I think I, I want you to at least be aware of, a more modern example, would be Lee Strobel, who also sought to disprove the teachings of the Gospels. But in his research, God grabbed a hold of him and he recognized that what was there was actually true. And he has written a great book called The Case for Christ. I give you those just to give you some foundation to say, listen, John's theme is what? Evidence. And that evidence leads to belief. And that belief ultimately leads to life. John 20, 30, and 31. And these men went in trying to undermine and disprove the evidence, but only found that that evidence was true. Now, let's move along to this last lesson, the belief in Jesus because of the temple. Twice in this passage, we're told that the disciples remembered something. Now, just a little note, when you're reading a story and you see something mentioned multiple times, or even twice here, that... You know, the person who's writing it down is leaving that as a signal for you to pay attention. So, the first one is found in, in uh, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for, the, for your house will consume me. This is ultimately a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. But the important thing I, I think is us to address here is this. It's possible that these disciples who, in particular we know Nathan was certainly a student of the Word of God, when they saw what Jesus was doing, whether it was all the disciples at one time, maybe Nathan spoke up and he said, what's going on here reminds me of this particular passage, zeal for your house will consume me, and we're seeing it on display here. It's very possible that they, saw, they thought of that immediately or maybe at a later time. Uh, this is something they came to remember um, about who Jesus is. That he is this vigorous lion 
um, who is consumed with the glory of God. But there's another arena where he is uh, remembered, and that is verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead. Aha, so this is a after, right? This is like a flashback in the story of John's gospel. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they remembered what was written, and they remembered the words that Jesus spoke or said. But here's the point. Those disciples, in particular for this last part here, did not put all the dots together until when? Until after Jesus went to Jerusalem, he suffered and he died and he was beaten ultimately on that cross and sent to that cross and took on the sin of the world, was buried, and he rose from the dead. It wasn't until then that, bing, light bulb went off. And they remembered what Jesus said. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, friends, that's pretty powerful. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize here is this. It's just a great principle, helpful principle. We can pull it out of the Old Testament if we want to say it this way. We can be confident that the word of God does not return void. Or to put it another way, when you and I share, speak, preach, teach God's word, that God's word will be at work. And it may not take root immediately. It may take years, as it did here with the disciples, to actually, boom, have the light bulb go off. But you can be sure it wasn't wrong for Jesus to talk about himself this way and for the disciples after the resurrection to finally get it. And many times, even I'm sure that many of you sat around at Thanksgiving with Friends and family that were not believers, and you shared some things about God, and some of them just kind of went, oh, brother, we have to listen to this. And you're thinking to yourself, boy, that was really bad. That was rough. I just don't know if I should have said anything, but I'm trying to be faithful to you, God. I just want to tell you, you have an example here of a seed planted, but fruit not bearing fruit until some time later. Be faithful to share the truth of God. Be fearful, faithful to live that example before those who are unbelievers. Now, this is true about your children. This is true about your extended family. This is true about your friends. Now, not all the time is the word of God going to land on soil that is fruitful. Remember, it's not your job. We give God the freedom to do what he's going to do Our responsibility is to be faithful, right? To give it. He's the one that will reap the harvest. Now, friends, their belief took place because of the temple. Your children's belief, your friend's belief, may take place because of a word that was spoken in a time of need. Or maybe it was spoken because you were zealous for the things of God, Not that you were weird, 
Not that you were wacky, but you had a passion for the glory of God. And at first, it may be for them something to mock. But it settled in their mind to you, God, his word, and his glory was important. And as they go through life and as they struggle through life, they begin to think, hey, so-and-so, when they went through this, they gave God the glory. When they faced this struggle, they said, I want to go to God's word. They gathered God's people together, or whatever it might be. You're planting a seed. You're planting a seed. You're planting a seed. It is God that determines when that actually is going to take root. And I just want to encourage you here. God wants us to be zealous about worship in his church, to be careful what we're bringing in, not to be so consumed with our own personal preferences, but at least to understand the importance of having an atmosphere, a philosophy, and a behavior that would be glorifying to God. He wants us to recognize that his resurrection is that capstone that means that he is our Lord and he is worthy to be listened to and he has every right to say what he says. As a lion, as well as a lamb. Cautioning us, warning us, encouraging us, counseling us. And we also are reminded that maybe not everything that he has shared with us have we quite got yet. In his time, we will. For his glory. Lord, help us today. Help us today to allow your truth to settle deep down in our hearts. And Lord, as you reveal things to us, Lord, maybe there's some sin that is there. Maybe there's some things, Lord, that we know that we're bringing in, that we are creating, Lord, distractions, even for, for us personally to worship you. And Lord, maybe we're, Lord, maybe we're actually doing other things that would just make it difficult for others to, to worship. And Lord, help us to focus on ourselves, not to think about others, but to think about ourselves only and to measure only our own hearts at this point in time, Lord. And would you have freedom to say what you need to say through your Holy Spirit? And Lord, help us to contemplate those things for your glory. Lord, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the fact that unlike so many other people that claim to be God or claim to be the answer to man's problems, you died, but you also rose again. And Lord, you are alive still. And you are a mediator between God and man. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Help us, Lord, to trust your word and its power. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.